The Tet Offensive happens in Vietnam. President Lyndon B. Johnson announces that he won't seek re-election. Martin Luther King is assassinated. Robert F. Kennedy is assassinated. There are violent clashes at the Democratic Party convention in Chicago. Protesters take action against the Miss America pageant. Tommy Smith and John Carlos raise their fists in a black power salute at the Mexico City Olympic Games. And Richard Nixon wins the presidential election in the United States. Fifty years ago, all of this happened in one year, 1968. Welcome to episode 45 of American History 2 and the very first one of 2018. And just to begin with a very small apology, we did in the end of the last episode promise you that you were going to get a brand spanking new different type of podcast arriving in your stream at the beginning of January. But thanks to the British rail system, that wasn't possible this time. You'll be getting that at the beginning of February. But anyway, on to this month's episode. And I am Mark McClay. And as always, I'm joined by Malcolm Craig. Hello, Malcolm. Happy New Year. And the very same to you, Mark. Uh, yeah, very excited to be recording the first episode of 2018. And in this episode, rather appropriately for the year, we're going to be looking at one year in history, 1968, 50 years ago. And 68 is one of those years where it seems everything seems to happen in the one year in politics, diplomacy, society, culture. And in order to help us to understand this you know, critical 12 months in American and global history, we are absolutely delighted to be joined by University College London's Nick Witham, who, amongst many, many other things, is co-editor of an upcoming book uh, from Edinburgh University Press that reassesses uh, the American 1968. So welcome, Nick, and you'll be able to give us just a minute on your research interests more broadly. Yeah, hi guys. Thank you very much uh, for having me and giving me uh, the chance to talk about this book, which is um, which is being published uh, in a few weeks' time at the beginning of, of, of February. Um, I'm um, I'm a historian of uh, the United States. Uh, as you said, I work at University College London at the Institute of the Americas there, um, and I primarily teach uh, 20th century U.S. history. Um, and I'm particularly interested in my research in, I guess, the relationship between power and protest in the United States since the 1960s. Um, and in particular, the way that that relationship is played out um, in anti-war movements and international solidarity movements and their relationship to the state. So um, my interest in 1968 has, has really grown out of that and trying to think about the legacies of uh, 1960s protest um, and the impact that it had on American politics, both in that moment and since. Cool. Well, we look forward to discussing this. Uh, I was going to say magical year, but I feel that's really <laughs> the wrong word. <laughs> but uh, the, one, the one thing I wanted to start with, Nick, I mean, I know quite a few historians who are a wee bit sniffy about the idea of books or, the, or just, you know, like sort of courses or whatever that focus solely on one year in history. Um, you know, this, of course, hasn't stopped countless books that focus on specific years coming out. I'm quite partial to one that was that was on 1965 um, <laughs> and, uh, called The Eve of Destruction, I think. But uh, there's many of those out there. But at the end of the day, it's just 365 days. Um, it, like, why is it useful to think about the importance of a year in, in, its, in it by itself, such as 1968? Yeah, I think uh, I think that's a, a really good uh, and important question, and I think there's a sense in which uh, historians are perhaps right to be slightly sniffy uh, about these year markers um, as as 
designators of historical significance. Uh, it's very, very difficult to say that one particular 365-day period, as you say, is more important than any other or more pivotal or more significant. Um, but I think there are a whole range of ways in which it is useful um, for historians to think in this way. I mean, if we try and pinpoint pivotal moments in history, we're essentially asking a lot of the key questions that we should be asking as historians and that we should be getting our students to ask things like, when do things change? How do they change? How are longer term processes of social, political, cultural change set in train? Um, and in some sense, focusing in on particular years and trying to work out where their significance come from, comes from helps us to, to answer those questions. So in thinking about 1968, I'm less interested in convincing you and, and everybody else that 1968 is the most important year ever. Um, because I, I, I don't think I would be able to put together a particularly strong argument for that. But I'd like to get us thinking about the fact that 1968 as a focal point helps us to think about a broader understanding of the 1960s, where social change in the 1960s came from um, and what impact it had on, on American politics in the aftermath of the 1960s. So in, in broad strokes, because you know, we talked about the, you know, in our little introduction there about 1968 in a, you know, as a kind of global, not just an American year of importance. So, I mean, so what is the importance of 1968 in the kind of the very broadest context? What are the, what are the main things we should take from a year that saw genuine mass protest and calls for change on a, on a genuinely worldwide scale? Yeah, it's, um, it's quite daunting, I think, to answer that question and to, to have a really sort of um, global and comparative understanding of um, the significance of 1968. Because as you say, it is a moment of protest uh, and a moment of political and social upheaval all over the world um, in a variety of different ways. Um, you see protests um, against the Vietnam War emerging, obviously, in the United States, um, but also throughout Western Europe. Uh, and in various parts of what was then called the Third World. Um, but these are protests not just against US policy in Vietnam, this incredibly com uh, controversial and complicated conflict, but also against the Cold War generally and Cold War ideology on both sides of, um, of the divide. Um, but these protests and this social upheaval, they're also about the repressive post-war state as it emerges in the United States, in Latin America, in Western Europe, um, in various parts of Asia and Africa as well. They're protests in favour of human rights, in favour of decolonisation. So it's a, it's a massive year of global protests. Um, but I think what's also interesting um, are the interconnections between these protests. Um, if we think about it from an American perspective, just for a second, uh, American protesters engaged directly during the late 60s, 1968, more specifically with Vietnamese communists, with European student protesters, with Latin American revolutionaries, with Palestinian liberation fighters, with African-American colonial movements uh, and representatives of those in various ways. Um, and so I think there's a sense in which um, we have to place 1968 on a, on a global scale as a moment of significant political um, protest and social upheaval. 
So thinking so I mean thinking about America in particular, that was you know, yeah. a great summation of these kind of global currents, you know, decolonization, the you know, the Vietnam War, you know, the, the transnational interconnections and what happens in all these different nations around the world and how it all you know how it fits together and how individual actors and groups are kind of you know feeding off each other and, and all these kind of things. So what I mean on the American experience of of nineteen sixty eight, are there are there any particular key themes? That, that you would think and you're kind of like, you know, co-authors on this, this book, think these are the key themes that we need to look at to try and understand the American experience of 1968. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there are absolutely. Um, and, you know, we can we can maybe talk a little bit later about some of the um, some of the key events that, that make these themes significant. But um, my uh, my argument and my co-editor's argument, uh, Martin Halliwell from the University of Leicester, is that there are three distinct ways that we should think about the significance of 1968 and of um, the the late 60s and early 70s more more broadly as a um, as a significant political moment in the in the United States. We need to think about politics to start with. Um, so the way in which 1968 and the experiences of that year shaped the political identity of um, political actors across the spectrum um, in the United States, really. Um, in some senses, uh, this is a moment of crisis for um, mainstream American liberalism um, because of the controversies set in train by America's um, uh, failures in Vietnam. Lyndon Johnson, who won incredibly um, successful uh, election in 1964 against Barry Goldwater, decides not to run for re-election to the presidency in 1968. Uh, and this is because his attempt to balance um, the domestic priorities of great society liberalism, ending poverty, ending malnutrition, um, ending racial discrimination, can't be balanced with the Cold War priorities of anti-communism in um, Southeast Asia. So it's a moment of crisis for liberalism, um, but it's also a moment of fracture for uh, more radical left-wing politics, um, when protesters arrive in Chicago um, to protest at the Democratic National uh, Convention, there um, they're shut out from the um, they're shut out from from the convention itself. Uh, they're forced to protest um, in streets and parks around Chicago. Um, but what happens in this moment is a fracturing of protest movements. Some people are against the war. Some people are against the Democratic Party more generally. Some people associate um, with uh, the yippies and the counterculture. Um, some people begin to associate with the weather underground and the turn towards terrorism um, and, and, and left-wing political violence. Um, so this is a, a moment of fracture for not only for, for liberals, but also for the left. And kind of out of this emerges a resurgence for American conservatism. Um, the election of Richard Nixon, the feeling that um, the silent majority of American voters who have been opposed to the social upheavals of the 1960s all along... Um, that these uh, that these voters have been proved right, and that they've almost been redeemed through the election of a conservative figure like Richard Nixon. So that's the that's the political side of 1968 significance. Cool. Yeah. Can I just pick pick up on a couple of things uh, on on something you were saying there? Generally, what you were outlining. I mean, one of the books that's been written on 1968 before, I think, was the uh, journalist Joe's Whitcover, who yeah. who bought, wrote, wrote the book dramatically entitled, you know, The Year the Dream Died. Yes. Um, I mean, is, is that a characterization? Um, and he's very much referring to that, I think, to that liberal dream of, you know, ending poverty, racial harmony, um, that 
that I think Whitcover himself saw as being embodied in Robert Kennedy, um, who's of course also assassinated in 1968. Do you think that's a fair characterization of the decade, or is it a bit hyperbolic? Um, I mean, I think it, 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 like most hyperbole, I guess, it speaks <laughs> to a certain truth uh, at the same time as being exaggerated and and as not necessarily capturing the complexity and the complexity and the reality of. Um, the situation. I mean, if we think about another one of the key themes that our book emphasizes, which is the way that 1968 shapes the political system, uh, the political significance of various forms of identity um, in uh, American society and American culture, we can see some of the ways in which um, that might be the case um, for African American civil rights um, uh, protesters and activists, for example, the death of Martin Luther King. Um, the violence that um, racks American cities um, as um, what some people would uh, would call riots and as other people would would call uprisings kind of rack cities around the United States in the aftermath of King's assassination. Um, you might sort of call this a, a moment that the dream died for a certain vision of um, of civil rights activists and a certain uh, activism, sorry, and a certain vision of um, American liberalism, but then at 68 is also a key moment for other forms of identity politics to emerge. Um, it's a key moment for radical feminists um, as they launch um, protests against the Miss America pageant in Atlantic City in 1968. This is a kind of key moment in the development of, of, of a radical feminist approach to uh, the problem of uh, gender and sexual discrimination in the United States. Um, it's also a key moment in the arguments of our contributor, Simon Hall, um, for the gay liberation movement, that in many ways, even though the gay liberation movement really picks up in 1969 um, with uh, the riots that uh, take place after um, the arrest of, of, of various um, people at the, the Stonewall Inn in New York City, um, that this is also... A, this is a moment that is informed by the spirit of 1968, this protest um, spirit that, 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 that emerges across the world and in particular in the United States. So there, this is a, this is a moment, not only I think where the dream dies, but also where various forms of protest begin to pick up momentum and movement. So if we see it through the lens of um, great society liberalism, if we see it through the lens of um white middle-class student protesters, it may seem like a moment of fracture, but seen through the lens of other forms of identity politics, things look a, a little bit different. And then you also identify, you know, another kind of the politics, identity, and then the idea of spaces mm. as well as important to, to 1968 as a third theme through which we can try and understand this period. How would you kind of encapsulate how you use the idea of spaces in analysing 68. Yeah, well, I think this is, in a sense, one of the exciting things about um, about what we what we try to do with the book, which is um, to to bring in um, a whole variety of interdisciplinary perspectives on the significance of 1968. So, looking at this through the lens of of urban history, of the history of cinema, of the history of um, popular culture in a whole variety of ways. So we identify four particular spaces that were significant to the way in which 1960s protests played out in 1968. Um, the first of these is the, is the, the city. And I've, I've mentioned this um, already a little bit, that the city becomes a, a key site of protest, in particular after the assassination of Martin Luther King and 
and um, and the emergence of, of, of urban upheaval in response to that. But it's not just for African-American activists that the, um, the city becomes a key site of protest. It's a key site of protest for um, for Chicano and Chicana activists um, protesting against um, uh, discrimination against uh, Latino Americans, uh, in particular in, in, in major cities in California, but also protesting against um, the Vietnam War. It's a key site of resistance for um, American Indian uh, activists, in particular the occupation of Alcatraz Island um, in San Francisco. So this late 60s moment is really significant um, as a political moment in cities. Um, it's also a key moment on, on university campuses. Um, one of the key, uh, one of the most famous um, manifestations of, of, of protest in 1968 is the occupation of, of, of major buildings at Columbia University in, in Morningside Heights in New York City. Um, and this is iconic and it's significant for a whole variety of reasons, but many other campuses see protests um, throughout the late 60s. Um, elite campuses like Columbia, non-elite campuses, historically black colleges and universities. Um, and there are a number of results of these pro protests which shape um, American universities in significant ways. The emergence um, across the board of co-education, for example, the changing of various rules against political protests on campus, perhaps most significantly, the emergence of multicultural curriculums um, in black studies, in um, Chicano and Chicana studies, in uh, various other forms of, 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 of ethnic studies uh, that really begin to diversify and change the face of um, American higher education. But at the cultural level, you also see um, the performance, uh, as, as Martin Halliwell in his chapter argues, the performance becoming incredibly political. This is the musical performance, um, the musical live performance, uh, theatre, um, both in traditional formats and street theatre, but also this reconceptualization of protest as a form of performance, as a form of entertainment. Um, so that's an, another, another space. And, and finally, as, um, as, as Sharon Monteith suggests, um, the screen becomes, uh, the cinema screen in particular, and, and also to some extent the television screen become political spaces. Um, the dramatic film Easy Rider is filmed during 1968, released in 1969. Um, the documentary film Medium Cool, again, filmed during 68, released in 69. Uh, and I think these films in particular, she identifies, capture the kind of countercultural impulses of this youthful protest generation in, in really significant ways. So there are a whole variety of spaces ranging across physical spaces to, to, to cultural spaces that, that impact the significance of 1968, I think. Cool. So Nick, since you, since you mentioned the, the music angle briefly, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring in our resident former DJ uh, on the podcast, who is, who is my co-host Malcolm Craig. Um, and uh, Malcolm, I was wondering if you could speak a wee bit um, about, about music in 1960 and if there's anything we can really learn from it. I mean, it's, it's not so much, you know, uh, you know, learning from. I don't think I'll be able to speak about uh, music in '68 in the erudite manner in which Nick has just spoke, spoken about various issues. But I mean, it is an important, you know, year. Kind of like there's there's endings and there are, and there are beginnings in '68 for major groups that would have either shaped popular music and shaped a lot of protest music and political music, and you know, bands that would go on to form new musical movements. So like Buffalo Springfield. Mm. Split up, the Yardbirds and Cream, they all disband. These major, major bands all have all disbanded. But in the same year, you see the original incarnations of bands like Led Zeppelin, 
Black Sabbath, Can, King Crimson, Deep Purple. I mean, it's the roots of, of heavy metal mm. and hard rock are in 1968. That's all these important bands come out of it. And even bands that have been around since earlier in the 60s, like the Beatles, you know, they, I mean, they undergo all this change in the late 60s and become quite a different group. And they release the album, The Beatles, I mean, better known as the White Album because uh, of the, the cover. Uh, so, I mean, there's a lot of musical change going on in 1968, the emergence of, of new musical forms and then the, you know, the, the disbanding of old and popular, uh, mm. popular bands. Yeah, I, I think that that is uh, that's really interesting and important, Malcolm. Um, I mean, I have to say, uh, of all the people involved in in this book, I'm probably uh, the least of a music buff. So I'm not the I'm not the guy to talk to in a lot of detail about music. But it would, I'd be interested to hear you if you had anything to say about this. Say a bit more about um, one of the things that I really try and get my students to te- uh, to think about when I teach um, the '60s as a as a moment of protest and as as a as a moment in the history of American radicalism, which is you know, there's this there's this stereotypical idea that the counterculture and the political protests of the 1960s operate to some extent in tension and in, in, in contradiction with each other. Um, and one of the things I try and get students to do is connect the dots between um, the psychedelia of some of the music that you've just been talking about or the other alternative angles that come in from the counterculture that actually have very obvious political resonances, I think, um, and there are a whole example, a whole range of examples of those, but that uh, I think I'm starting to ramble here. <laughs> no, 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 no. I entirely get what you're talking about because I mean, I mean, you're dead right. The I mean, politics is you know has always infused these things. But you know, just taking, I mean, one example is you know it's it's slightly later, but Hendrix, yeah, you know, Hendrix doing the Star Spangled Banner on the electric guitar and all that kind of thing. I mean, if ever there was a a political moment uh, on stage. You know that you know that's it right you know right there. So I think the, the you know the ways in which the kind of the the counterculture and and music and all that can collide and intersect. I mean I'm not I know the music, but the background to it is slightly less of an area of expertise. But definitely, I mean I think they can see that you know the politics of '68 and so much that emerges in uh, you know bands like you know something another band that comes out of 1968 is Crosby, Stills and Nash. You know, and then they go on to in 1970, you know, create one of the greatest protest songs in the form of Ohio, mm. Kent State shootings and all that kind of thing. So then, you know, the roots of all of this definitely are, are within 1968. Yeah, but, and I mean, I, I mean, I think so much of the great music as well that comes out of the 60s is just so intrinsically linked to the Vietnam War. Um, I mean, so whether it is, and I mean, uh, there's a touch of the sort of race riots and racial uprisings that come into it as well. You know, for example, Buffalo Springfield's for what it's worth. Is is very much you know about the sort of police element of that, um, but weirdly I always like see when I think of 1960, I am and I, I straight away get a soundtrack in my head, and it's Rolling Stones, "Give Me Shelter," but I just checked and that wasn't released till 1969. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not coordinating my brain. <laughs> just but it. I don't think it's any coincidence that major figures in kind of the evolution of new musical forms, whether it's heavy metal on both sides of the Atlantic, whether it's, you know, Krautrock in Germany, or even when when we think about hip-hop, which emerges in the late 70s from the kind of the entire kind of, you know, New York block party scene and all that kind of thing. So many of the major figures that are in that, Cool Herc, Africa Bambata, they all have the experience of 68. 
they're you know they're all you know young you know young individuals back in six back in the sixties and all that kind of thing. So they have the experience of this kind of reaction to many of the issues that uh, you know that Nick was talking about there. But I, and I, I just I think that demonstrates perhaps one of the one of the broader themes really really effectively of of what we're trying to do with the book, but in a sense what is what has been done by many, many scholars of the 1960s in the last 10 or 10 or 15 years, which is try and resist this idea of a declension narrative that the sum that somehow going back to that point Mark made earlier, that this is a this is a moment where dreams are shattered. Well, that might be the case for some people, but that actually there are a whole range of connections um, between the protest moment that is best represented by 1968 and the flowering of all kinds of forms of alternative culture and alternative politics in the 1970s and the 1980s. And that example you just cited, Malcolm, I think is one of one of many that helps us to demonstrate that that declension narrative about 68 being an end to radical politics, an end to alternative approaches. Uh, to American life is is just way too simplified. Yeah, and you mentioned kind of earlier on when you were talking about the the importance of obviously you know in the kind of protest movements of '68, you know you know youth movements mm. and you know younger people being involved in it. And it's I mean that's a part that I find you know genuinely fascinating. So many of the people involved in protests around the world, Western Europe, America, in Mexico, you know all of these different places, they've grown up within the Cold War system. Mm. that the Cold War order has been part of their lives. And you know, I'd like to get your perspective on it. Is, the word fractures come up more than once. <laughs> is 68 a year of like generational fracture? Is protest about old versus young? Those who grew up experiencing the world wars and the depression versus those who grew up during the peace and within the Cold War order? Yeah, I, I think that's a I think that's a very good characterization of it. And I think nineteen sixty eight is a is a vivid representation of that trend of generational uh fracture. And I think generational divide is a is a key theme in understanding the nineteen sixties in the United States. Um but it's important for us to recognise that it isn't just something that emerges fully formed in the mid nineteen sixties or in nineteen sixty eight. It's a long term process that's rooted in changes that date back at least as far as the 1940s and the 1950s, if not further. When we think about um, the baby boom, uh, the large uh, expansion of, of births in the, in the 1940s and 1950s, that mean there are literally more young people um, in the 1960s uh, in the United States and in Western Europe than there were before. Um, the emergence after the Second World War of post-war prosperity, which means that these younger people who are growing up are asking different fundamental questions about what the point of um, their existence uh, in the world and what the point of politics and what the point of culture are. Uh, less how do we maintain prosperity and more what is the point of prosperity, what is the point of affluence if there aren't other things that we can strive for and reach for. Um, I think this plays into another key feature of this period, which plays into generational divide and is important in understanding it, which is the expansion of higher education. As there are more young people, more of these young people are attending institutions of higher education um, or institutions of compulsory miseducation, as Paul uh, Goodman called them, because, you know, (laughs) these are these are spaces in which these young people who, as you say, they're questioning Cold War ideology, they're questioning the politics of of their parents' generation. Uh, they feel as though these universities don't really um, speak to those understandings um, in, in, a, in a whole variety of ways, not least the way that the university is firmly embedded in the Cold War state um, and relies for so much of its funding on 
um, the legacies of the GI Bill in one way, but also um, on military research um, and research into the type of technologies that are wreaking such devastation in Southeast Asia during this period. So that whole process is, is definitely driven by generational divide. But I also think it's important for us not to overemphasize that that factor, right? There are um, older people involved in a whole range of different protests um, on the left. The anti-war movement is a great example of this, has deep roots um, in the old left, deep roots in the pacifist and anti-nuclear movements of um, the 1940s and 1950s. But there are also young enthusiasts on the right as well, Um, the Young Americans for Freedom um, formed on college campuses around the United States, uh, arguing for a conservative approach to politics um, and participating in a broader pro-war movement that we should never forget, even as we focus attention on the anti-war movement. So um, whilst it's an important piece to understanding the, the kind of the complex social dynamics at work in the late 60s, I don't think generational conflict is, is the whole story just because, you know, there were young people on the left and old people on the right. <laughs> <laughs> so it doesn't explain everything. Yeah. Cool. So, I mean, we've, we've talked around a lot of issues to do with 1968. Let's go back to the start of it. Um, and, and, I, and I particularly want to talk about one event, which I think when this podcast comes out is roughly going to coincide with the the 50th anniversary of that event. And that's the Tet Offensive. Um, and, and I mean, I, I'm currently teaching a module on the Vietnam War, so this is particularly <laughs> interesting to me at this point. And I think it's, I mean, maybe it's just because I'm in the thick of teaching this, but I think it's really hard to overstate the importance of Tet um, in a lot of ways. I mean, first of all, the Tet Offensive, you know, just really sort of destroys the myth that uh, among at least the American people that the Americans are winning the Vietnam War in the way that the the military and the Johnson administration have been assuring them for years that they were winning it. Um but it also, its legacy, and I know you're particularly interested in the legacies of 1960, is, is even more interesting to me. Just, I think as well, this whole conservative, really dis- disliking the media um, and viewing it as a liberal uh, mouthpiece is very influenced by events in Tet, um, which are seen to turn the American people against the war because they show fighting on the streets, they have Walter Cronkite declaring that they can't win the war anymore or whatever. And I I don't really have a specific question for you. I'm I'm more just sort of interested in what your thoughts on Tet and particularly his legacy um, should be. Yeah, I think, um, I think you're, you're absolutely right. Tet is, Tet is key here. And, you know, it just so happens that the Tet Offensive, which is launched on the 30th of January, 1968 happens to come at the beginning of 1968. Mm -hmm. So it kind of, it, it opens the chapter and is, is one of the many events I think that, that contribute to this sense of significance for the year. Um, but I think that I think that that point about television, just specifically for a second, is a is a really is a really important one. You know, um, Cronkite coming out and speaking out against the war demonstrates that the television screen as well as the cinema screen can become a political uh, space and a, a place for political um, performance of a, of a type um, in a way that um, the conformist understanding of what television was doing in American culture in the 1950s um, might not necessarily have allowed for. And I, there's a, there's a fa- you're absolutely right, there's a fascinating um, link to trace through there to conservatives' understandings of, of a liberal main, uh, mainstream media. But I think more broadly, um, Tet is obviously, the Tet Offensive is obviously a watershed in the history of the Vietnam War. 
um, even if um, militarily it wasn't as significant um, as it was as a kind of uh, a propaganda event in the history of the war. It represented um, the defeat of Lyndon Johnson's policies of Americanization. Um, it represented the rise of uh, what would eventually become Richard Nixon's um, policies of Vietnamization of the war, trying to pass the war back into the hands of the South Vietnamese um, because of uh, essential defeat in confidence um, of US military capability. How successful is the United States in pursuing its goals militarily abroad? Well, the answer until Tet is um, a confident, aggressive one. But after Tet, that, that becomes slightly different. Um, and I think it's key, as Andrew Preston points out in the chapter um, in our in our book, that we have to see the anti-war movement as a participant in that process, right? Um, it's probably much more significant to place a lot of emphasis and a lot of agency on the North Vietnamese themselves who launched the Tet Offensive, who who um, who pursued it in, in in the way that they did. But but the anti-war movement plays a role in in the way that Tet is perceived. But actually, I think Andrew's argument in his chapter, which is which is an an excellent one, is. But the legacy of Tet is not so much about the success and the impact of the anti-war movement and of anti-war activism more generally, but actually it's the lessons that the American military and the American state learns as a result of Tet that are the most lasting legacy of it as a, as a key event in 1968. Um, and, it's, and it's really what starts the United States towards the kind of contemporary um, state of permanent war, or at least if not starts it, then it, it, it plays a really significant role in, 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 in developing this situation. So after Tet and after the defeat in Vietnam in the 1970s, the US shifts away from a draft system towards an all-volunteer um, military. In the 1990s, there's a revolution in military affairs led by Colin Powell to develop more um, surgical, uh, more technological approaches to war. And this all spins out into the war on terror during the, the 2000s, where it never feels as though the United States is at peace. Um, and in some senses, Andrew calls this the irony of protest um, in the 1960s, is that the most significant impact of protest is the American state and the American uh, military learning how to circumvent um, the democratic accountability that is represented by uh, a high-profile anti-war movement. And you know, given the, 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 the transnational importance of Vietnam as a as a conflict that that echoes, I mean, really does echo around the around the world in so many different ways for different people and different groups. And as someone kind of like who primarily researches, you know, foreign policy issues, it's interesting to think about to what extent '68 represents something of a watershed in changing attitudes towards the United States' role in the world. Yeah, you know, the the United States as a global actor. And you know, we talked just a few moments ago about how so many protests, you know, particularly in Western Europe, are against not only Vietnam, but the, the Cold War order and the, the system that is the Cold War as a system that has been set up uh, in this kind of second half of the 20th century between the Soviet Union and the United States. You know, what does 1968 tell us about the way in which, you know, external actors perceive the United States as a, yeah, as a force I, I, in the world, it's a good question. I mean, and uh, there's a sense in which I, I, I'm, I'm very interested to hear further what your your thoughts are on this. I mean, I think you're absolutely right that this represents a a, a moment of systemic crisis for the Cold War order. Um, 
that opposition to the United States and the connection between the United States and other national governments becomes key to understanding protest movements around the world. So this is the case in um, in Western Europe in particular, that opposition to the Vietnam War as a moral outrage um, is important, but also the complicity of France, um, the complicity of Great Britain, the complicity of West Germany in um, the Cold War more generally, um, as it is being waged by the United States, the positioning of nuclear weapons in those countries, um, the, the the way in which those national governments are seen as being complicit in the United States broader project. So that's one thing, and I think that's absolutely right. And, you, you know, we might trace 68 as a moment of um, significant anti-American feeling around the world, but I think it's also very important to recognise that it's not just the United States that sees widespread opposition in this moment it's also the ussr right so this isn't a it isn't a simple moment of um anti-americanism it's a it's an opposition to the logic of the cold war more expansively um all of these left-wing um protest movements that, that we've talked about hold very little romanticism um, about the ussr they're their sense of where radical politics lies is much more with the romanticism of the third world in Maoism, in Guevarism, in Ho Chi Minh thought. So romanticizing the Chinese revolution, the Cuban revolution, the, the struggle of the North Vietnamese, um, and a kind of romance of a non-aligned movement, um, a, a, a set of politics that exists obviously in relationship to the Cold War and to the superpowers, but also separate from that logic. I think that's incredibly important. To, to understanding how the United States is perceived. Yeah, I think it's really important you point out there about the, you know, I think, you know, we've certainly forgotten to mention the Eastern Europe yeah. in 1968 as well. I mean, there's the, pro, I mean, Poland, some of the earliest 68 protests are taking place in Poland where you have, I think it's a very small number. It might even be one protester against the kind of the Soviet system, the Cold War, immolates himself yeah. uh, in in you know, and a direct echo of what has happened with Buddhist monks in Vietnam, and disgracefully, I cannot remember his name. Uh, but you know, yeah. So I mean, Eastern Europe as well, reacting to the system that has been imposed on it, right? Uh, you and, know, as, and, as a legacy of World War Two, you know? yeah, and the Prague Spring as well. I mean, of course, know, yes. as, a, as a series of kind of punctuating moments in um, the. Uh, the U.S. left and and the Western left, more generally, falling out of love with the USSR. Prague is 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 incredibly significant as well. I mean, it's one example of many um, of the repressive nature of the USSR uh, in relation to its um, its 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 Eastern Bloc um, satellites. But uh, again, it, it demonstrates the bankruptcy not just of the United States in the mind of a lot of radicals and protesters, but of of both superpowers in equal measure. And it's you know fascinating you talked you know briefly mentioned there kind of the issue of you know the nuclear arms race and all that kind of thing and that's one thing that's always you know fascinated me is the way in which anti nuclear protest is something that's in such a minor key yeah in this in this era but the decline of anti nuclear protest post Cuban missile crisis post limited test ban treaty and how the all these other issues Vietnam wider concerns kind of take protest away from the the nuclear you know, towards other ways of kind of like war and of the Cold War system and all that yeah. kind of thing. But at the same time, how, and this again, I think this kind of relates back to the kind of the, the US role in the world, how there's genuine change in the global nuclear order 
1968 as well. Like, you know, it's the final outcome of the the, uh, the negotiations that become the Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons. And I think that's an important moment, you know, driven very much by, you know, non-superpower actors, Ireland, you know, Mexico, uh, you know, nation, nations like that, who's, who drive the move towards, you know, a non-proliferation agreement. But, you know, but setting up, and again, I think this is, and again, the echoes of 1968, looking at it in a long durée kind of, kind of fashion, how 68 sets up this, what is, even looking at it dispassionately, a fundamentally iniquitous, temporally biased global nuclear order, you know, where you've got kind of, yeah, if you had nuclear weapons, you know, prior to 67, you're golden. But if you have nuclear weapons after, you know, the, the creation of the NPT, then that delegitimizes your nuclear ambitions and maybe the, you know, the varied reasons for, for wishing to have, you know, nuclear capability. So I think that's another thing that ties into this, what you've been you know, talking about before, about the, not just 68 as a singular year, but as some as a year in which these new kinds of order are, it's a year in which they are, if not established, we see kind of them kind of reaching, not reaching maturity either. I'm struggling for the description of it, but there's been a process before that. In 68, they really come into existence. And then after that, they create these new new orders like the, the, global, uh, the global nuclear order created by the NPT. Mm. So, you know, thinking about the United States, again, domestically, because we, when we think about, you know, the, there's always this perception of the 1970s that, you know, oh, the United States was in decline and all that kind of thing. And there's a sense within the US of, of decline, that they're losing power, that, that because of, you know, detente in the global arena, because of all sorts of changes, because of Vietnam, because of Watergate domestically, because of economic woes and all that kind of thing. Oh, no, we're in the US, terrible decline. All these cries go up, you know, saying that. And, you know, these cries are, are emerging again now. You know, we see it right just now when we're talking, oh, the US is in steep decline, all that kind of thing as well. You know, is it absolute decline or is it just comparative decline compared to other nations uh, like China? Does that emerge from, from 1968? Is this sense that the US is actually, you know, the city on a hill is actually sliding down the hill and is going to go into a ravine somewhere and end up kind of all in shadow and all that kind of thing? Is 68 also a moment where this sense of US decline, whether it is real or imagined, re- begins to emerge? Yeah, I mean, I, I think to sort of go back to something that we've already touched on a little bit, it's, it, there's an extent to which it depends on who you ask at this moment. Um, that for people embedded in the liberal consensus, um, in, embedded in, um, in, in, in the Democratic Party as it's represented by the Kennedy and the Johnson administrations, I think an answer has to be yes to that question of whether or not they feel as though they're, they're in decline. I think certain, certain parts of, of the radical left feel as though they're in decline as well. It's not just um, the election of Richard Nixon, although that's, that's significant, but it's the failure to, to, um, the failure to sort of intervene in party politics, the failure to achieve revolution, um, the assassination of key political figures who for some on the left felt um, like Martin Luther King, like Robert Kennedy, who some on the left felt they could have some hope in. Um, and then there's obviously also this feeling that US world influence may be on the decline because of the um, because of the 
defeat in Vietnam that is that is beginning in 1968. But I think it's also important for us to recognise that for the people represented by the silent majority and for the people involved in the Republican Party, um, this is a moment of electoral triumph. Um, and as I've already mentioned, for, for movements like the women's um, liberation movement, for the gay liberation movement, this is a moment of beginning and, and radical possibility, not a moment of of, of sharp decline. So I think there's a point in which we don't want to read too teleologically from 1968 to that idea of the 1970s as an age of limits and an age of, of decline, that that is something that emerges out of the late 60s and the early 70s, but doesn't necessarily have to start in 1968. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, when we think about the trajectory of modern conservatism, um, there's a sense in which, yes, we have the mid to late 70s as, as a moment of profound um, despair, um, Watergate, the election of of, of Carter, uh, economic crisis, things like this. But immediately from 1980 onwards, this sense of um, the rebirth of faith in American conservatism with the election of Richard uh, of Ronald Reagan, sorry, um, I think means that this question of whether the United States is on decline, whether conservative ideology in decline is 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 problematized definitely if not completely rejected yeah i mean i just get to sort of add on to that i think it just gives the impression of 68 that everything's such in flux and there's so much of it is to do with vietnam i mean you, you know you talk about american decline i mean it strikes me as well that you know by this point johnson's basically a prisoner and he's on white house he can't go outside for fear of protesters being violent towards him and um, you have people you know shooting politicians proving that it's probably right not to leave the white house but mostly, I mean, I think the importance of Vietnam to the political debate and everything that's going on just is shown by the fact that Richard Nixon is winning the election by about 20 points until people think that peace might well be at hand and that Humphrey's against the war and will end it. And it's only Nixon's, you know, shady diplomacy um, that, that I think we've discussed on a previous podcast in scuppering the peace deal that ensures his victory and many of his own aides thought he was going to lose that election had he not scuppered it. So the fact that 20 percentage points can be moved just on the basis of how events were going in Vietnam just tells you how it's not a normal political year and that that event is dominating it, I think. Um, But anyway, Nick, I mean, I I wanted to get on to to asking you about 1968 and its wider legacy and, you know, your, your own specific interest and, you know, how it's been remembered over these past five decades. Um, like, you know, and I believe you even sort of break it down into sort of waves of memory. So I was wondering if you could kind of speak, speak to us about that. Um, yeah, I mean, my, my particular um, interest in this, in this comes from um, uh, a kind of contemporary sense, really, almost going back to the, the question you, you raised earlier about, um, about the media and about the where the conservative critique of the liberal, liberally biased media comes from. It's the sense that the memory of the 1960s shaped so much of the politics that um, gets discussed in the United States and, and fought over in the United States today. Um, and so kind of tracing back in my, uh, f- for me, the, 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 the legacies of 1968 as it's been remembered by various people involved in the political activism at the time um, was a, a really significant part of trying to think about ha- not only the politics that happened um, on the ground and how that has shaped the modern United States, but also the way in which this more slippery thing called memory um, uh, helps us understand 1968 as a pivotal political moment. So um, just to think about this 
quickly, uh, there are various, as you say, waves in which um, activists of various stripes write memoirs, write autobiographies, write other forms of life writing that allow them to, in some ways, justify and think through the significance of the 1960s. So in the in the very early 70s, in the immediate aftermath of... Um, of 1968, uh, yippie radicals like um, Abby Hoffman uh, write memoirs trying to justify the uh, the kind of the the, the ultra radicalism that they participated in in 1968. Um, but also figures like Angela Davis, uh, the Black Power activist, who um, in 1968 uh, moves away from the Black Power movement towards the U.S. Communist Party. They're justifying their activities. They're placing 1968 as a, as a, as a central moment, but they're they're suggesting that really the only answer in that moment was true radicalism, that it was such a disorienting moment that um, a really radical, really revolutionary approach to American politics was the only thing that would work. Um, and this changes during the course of the 1980s, where um, more mainstream figures uh, like the um, ex-Students uh, for a Democratic Society activists, people like Tom Hayden and Todd Gitlin write participant histories and memoirs of the 1960s where they lament that process of radicalization. And they say, actually, the spirit of the early 1960s was lost in 1968. In, um, in, in Gitlin's phrase, years of hope turned in, uh, were ruined by days of rage. Um, and this is partly to do with a feeling that it was conservatives that really won the battle of the 1960s. By the mid-80s, when Ronald Reagan is, um, is looking insurmountable in the White House, um, former 60s radicals are very much um, more pessimistic. And then I think as we've moved towards the contemporary moment through the 1990s and the 2000s, um, interpretations of the 1960s have been in, have been motivated by all forms of, of, of culture wars, um, with feminists arguing in some ways that the, 60, the 68 represented a moment of hope that was dashed later with the anti-feminist crusade of the new right in the, in the 70s and the 80s. Um, with more conservative um, writers arguing that, um, that that this was actually another moment of beginning, but a moment of beginning for conservatives. Um, and then in the aftermath of 9-11, it becoming a, a, another battleground. Um, for example, Bill Ayres, who was an SDS activist, um, he went on to be one of the leaders in the weather underground, um, uh, violent offshoot of, of, of 60s radicalism that had a terrorism campaign in the late 60s and the early 70s. He writes a memoir called Fugitive Days about his time on the run um, that was published in 2001. Um, and he's seeking to justify his involvement in, um, in political violence, essentially, um, and in terrorism. And it's published a few days before 9-11. Um, but the reviews that are um, written about it are obviously published after 9-11. And the way that the events of 9-11 shape the response to this book, which I don't think would have been that significant had those events not happened, but because they were, Bill Ayers gets a whole set of backlash um, against his romanticization of political violence in a moment of profound um, emotional turmoil for the US. So 9-11 shapes 60s memory and shapes understandings of contemporary politics there. And I think that traces forward even into um, the campaigns of, of Barack Obama when his links to Bill Ayers from his time in Chicago were highlighted in the 2008 election campaign. Um, he was argued as having links to terrorism. And I think a lot of that obviously had to do with um, his race, um, and, and a conservative attempt to, to kind of characterise him um, as somehow soft on terrorism. But I also think it represented the politicisation of 60s memory 
more generally that here was a politician that conservatives could actively tie to a member of um, the radical left wing 60s generation. And that that demonstrated how um, the 60s was still very, very significant in the way that contemporary American politics is discussed. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it strikes me there. You know, you're talking about um, how the how the legacy has been fought over and how it changed. And you know, I remember reading a great book. It was about I think it was Bernard Van Bothmer. His name was on Framing the Sixties, and it was all about how sort of Reagan especially managed to divide it in the public memory into the good sixties of you know the safe sixties of John F. Kennedy um, into into the bad sixties of Lyndon Johnson, the Great Society, Richard Nixon, all those kind of things. It was a very convincing and and compelling argument and sort of listening to you talk about that reminded me. So there's one question I want to come on to that I've always wondered, not just about 1968, but the 1960s more broadly that I, that I just wanted to ask your own opinion on. So as we discussed earlier, the 1960s are the age when this huge baby boom generation come to fruition, a baby boom generation that in many ways go on to dominate American politics and society for decades thereafter. I mean, we had two baby boomers running, running against each other for president last uh, last year or two years ago now. Um, and Barack Obama is the only president, I think, since then that hasn't wasn't wasn't around in the 60s. Do do the sixties and do years like nineteen sixty eight get too much attention as being these great special years because there are so many people who lived them, who want to remember them, who want to remember the music they grew up with, who want to remember the events they grew up with? Or are they, as historians have argued, as important as we think they are? Are the 1960s? Is 1968 special? I know that's a big, big question to ask. <laughs> it's something that I've always mulled over because I am really interested in the 60s. That's when I research as well, but it, it's something to, to wonder. Yeah, I, I, I mean, look, there's no conclusive answer to that, is there? It's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really good, really challenging question. I mean, I think that they, what, what, you, what you said kind of speaks to two different truths. The first is that, yes, um, the baby boom generation drives um, an interest in the 1960s, which is which is undeniable. Um, and when you work on this topic, as you do, Mark, um, and as I have in, in, in bits and pieces, you realise that everyone, one, everyone who comes to hear you speak about a particular topic or every, anyone, everyone who's read anything you've written about a particular topic who lived through that moment wants to tell you about that, <laughs> wants to shape your understanding of it. Yeah. Um, and in some senses, that's incredibly valuable because, you know, um, who as a historian wouldn't turn down the opportunity to speak to the historical actors that you're writing about. But in other senses, it becomes sometimes a bit of a drag because um, the people who were there constantly feel as though they need to be correcting what you're saying and what you're arguing. So I think that's that's one process. I think it's also the case that um, there's an extent to which the publishing industry um has been driven by this 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 baby boom desire to read about the 1960s right it's not just a scholarly thing um as doug rossenow points out in his chapter in the book it's almost comedic how many memoirs of the 1960s have been published by figures who you know to some extent we could regard as being significant but in a lot of other ways are fairly marginal to the to the overall outcomes of of, of 1960s politics so what you said speaks to that truth that there is definitely a, a process by which um, this is being driven by uh, the generational significance of the baby boomers in the last in the last twenty or thirty years. But you know, I would just go back to some of the points I I made earlier about 
1968, not necessarily being the most important, the most pivotal year in American history or in 20th century American history or even in post-45 American history, but that the, some of the social and political and cultural processes that that year has come to represent in our minds demonstrate so much that is important about protest in the 1960s, its roots in the 1940s and the 1950s, and the impact that 60s protest has had on the way um, that contemporary American politics is shaped. I mentioned um, the election of, of, of Obama earlier. Um, I mean, one other way in which this, this has significant impact is the way in which contemporary protest movements, whether on the, on the right, the Tea Party, um, or on the left, uh, like the Occupy Wall Street movement or the Movement for Black Lives, um, you know, they are all in their own way dealing with the legacies of the 1960s. Um, and whether they like it or not, that's an inescapable legacy um, at the moment. Um, and I think it will remain the case in American social and political history for a while to come. And I think that is an excellent point to conclude our discussion of 1968 on. If I can just give one personal comment at the end of this, uh, just yesterday, uh, the news came out of the very sad death of the great American author, Ursula Le Guin, who was herself involved in anti-Vietnam war protest, anti-nuclear protest and all that kind of thing. And Le Guin is one of, is, is one of my great literary heroes. And if someone wants to read a book that was accepted by a publisher in 1968, but it's published in 1969 and captures so many of the themes we've talked about, radical feminism, ideas about gender and sexuality and about conflict and war and international relations. You should read Left Hand of Darkness because it's not just one of the best science fiction books ever written. It's one of the best books ever written, but that's just my opinion. But thank you very much, uh, Nick, for joining us and talking about your own research and about the, the upcoming book and everything. And it was a fascinating and uh, a very thorough discussion of 1968, I thought. So thank you so much for taking the time to come on. Thanks, Malcolm. And thank you, Mark, as well. It's been a lot of fun. Absolute pleasure. Cool. Well, uh, we are going to be back next month uh, when we are discussing uh, Native Americans and slavery. Um, so we're going back a century or so um, when we're going to be joined by Ed, Ayer, Ed Mayer sorry, to, to discuss that. So until then, um, thanks again for listening. Thanks again, Nick. And as always, thank you again, Malcolm. Goodbye. Cheers. <laughs> Yeah, oh yeah, what condition my condition was in I woke up this morning with the sun down shining in I found my mind in a brown paper bag But then I tripped on a cloud and fell eight miles high I tore my mind on a jagged sky I just dropped in To see what condition My condition was in Yeah, yeah, oh yeah What condition My condition was in I pushed my soul In a deep dark hole And then I followed it in Myself crawling out as I was crawling.